The gospel reading is from the gospel according to John, chapter 7, verses 10 through 52. Hear the word of the Lord. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly. And they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from. But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true. And him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? 
Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees, who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, and who was one of them, said to him, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. I think that's the longest scripture reading we've had in the last year and a half, and certainly since we've been in John. And I pray that the Lord will bless it to our hearts this morning. Let's pray together. Our Father, we bow before you as your priests, a congregation of priests, with an obligation, Father, not only to take the gospel out into the world, but, Father, to come before you and bring, Father, the world with which we're concerned before you. Our Father, as a congregation of your priests, we pray this morning for Leslie and Garnet Murphy. Oh, Father, bring your powerful, omnipotent comfort to bear upon their grieving. Wipe the tears from their eyes. Bring the power of the gospel, the promises to gospel, to bear upon them. Father, we pray this morning for David Mattingly. We pray that, Father, you would bring healing, 
You know his body, Father. You know the needs that he has physically. We pray that you would bring healing. Our Father, we pray for those that are hurting in our congregation, whether it be a physical pain or whether, Father, it be a great spiritual agony. We pray that you would bring healing. Our Father, there's marriages that need healing. Healing between husbands and wives. There's families that need healing. Healing between parents and children and parents and grandchildren and grandparents. Oh, Father, we pray that we would be a congregation of people not only praying, for others but we pray that we might be a congregational people who are able to bear witness to your power to heal in every aspect of our lives our fathers we open your word this morning we're well aware that John Sartell cannot teach or preach so that it will make any difference in our lives and so as we open your word, we, Father, automatically pray, Father, teach us, teach us in the power of your spirit. We pray when we leave here in a few minutes, we'll know that you've spoken. We're your children, Father. We want to hear your voice in our hearts, telling us the story, deepening our understanding for the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen. Do you have a passion for the world around you to know Jesus? I hope that question will remain before you like maybe a sign up here hanging over us this morning as a congregation. Do you have a passion for the world around you to know Jesus? Do you? Well, let's set this chapter in context. The first verse we saw last week is a foreboding canopy over the entire chapter. Look at that first verse. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. The government, his own government, the government of his own country was seeking to end his life. For that reason, Jesus was up north in the hill country, in the boonies. He lived up there. He lived in Galilee. He lived in Capernaum. The general population of Israel was not hostile to Jesus. It was the political and religious leaders in Jerusalem in the providence of Judea who were plotting his demise. 
That is the dark cloud over everything else in this chapter. The Feast of Booths. What was that? The Feast of Booths or the Feast of Temples or Tabernacles or Tents was taking place in Jerusalem. The feast took place at the end of the harvest season. The barns were full. The entire harvest had been reaped. It's very much like our Thanksgiving, except it was much larger and much longer. It was also commemorating this Feast of Tents or Feast of Booths was commemorating Israel's wilderness journey when they had no farms, when they had no harvest, when they had no barns. You remember they were a nomadic people living a nomadic life, wandering in the desert. This feast rivaled or surpassed, understand this, this feast rivaled or surpassed Passover in popularity. Jerusalem would be filled with pilgrims from all over Israel, with pilgrims from all over the Mediterranean world, Jewish people coming home for the Feast of Tents. Jesus' brothers, we saw last week, wanted him to go up to the feast with them. Jesus told them it was far too dangerous for him, but he said, you should go. He urged them to go. It was safe for them. After they left, Jesus did exactly what he had planned to do. He went up to Jerusalem. Incognito. No brothers, no family, no disciples, no entourage. That was our focus last week. This chapter also reflects the boiling cauldron that engulfed the entire city of Jerusalem. What caused this white-hot conflict? The conflict was caused by the claims of Jesus to deity and the works of Jesus that supported his claims. Now, to the leaders of the Sanhedrin, Headquartered in Jerusalem, this was blasphemy. It was blasphemy that deserved death. Now, step back and look at the crowd. Who made up this crowd at the feast? There were several groups. They're present in our story that we read this morning. There were the members of the Sanhedrin who had formed a cabal to arrest, try, and execute Jesus. The Sanhedrin was made up of powerful men, the most powerful men in Israel. Then there was the everyday, a second group was an everyday population of Israel who had witnessed Jesus not only doing what only God could do, but who heard him teach as no man they had ever heard. Then the third group were Jews from other nations. They certainly knew the name of Jesus. It had spread like wildfire throughout the Mediterranean area. 
But they did not, they had not witnessed his miracles. They had not heard his teaching. The seventh chapter records an ongoing conversation between Jesus and the people from these three groups. They're actually, if you count them, there's actually 18 or 19 questions in the seventh chapter of John, either asked by Jesus or by one of these groups. It's easy to get lost or distracted as you work your way through this chapter because of the different conversations, the different confrontations. I had completely written out my message for this week. I had it done. I liked it. It would not have been easy to teach, but it would cover and explain these conversations and confrontations. However, I kept asking myself, or saying to myself, John, you are missing something. I was not satisfied. I reread, I reread, and read again the passage. I went back to the commentaries. I could not find what I thought was missing. Tuesday night in the wee hours, I awoke thinking about it, and it became very, very plain. I have a question for you. Why did Jesus go up to Jerusalem in the seventh chapter? What drove him to walk into that boiling cauldron of controversy and hatred? He could have spent a peaceful week, been on a spiritual retreat in Galilee. He could have taken time to focus on preparing to go up to Jerusalem for the Passover six months later where he knew he would give his life a ransom. But he was a son of God and son of man. He could have skipped this feast. Other faithful Israelites would stay home for justifiable reasons. I wanted to to ask and answer three questions and it will answer the question, why did he go up to the feast? First, the question, what was the purpose of the incarnation? Why did the Son of God come in the flesh? That's the first question. Second question, what were the results of his teaching and conversations at this feast? When you sum it all up, what were the results of him going up to Jerusalem? Thirdly, what was the supreme cry of Jesus at the crux of the feast? At the most crucial time in the feast, what did Jesus cry out? When we answer those three questions, we'll know exactly why he went up to the feast. And it's very important for us to know that. So, what was the purpose of the incarnation? Why did the Son of God come in the flesh? There's one overriding reason, and we could spend the rest of our time looking gospel passage after gospel passage after gospel passage that would tell us the why of the incarnation. 
but we'll only go to one. It's in Luke 19. Jesus is working his way toward Jerusalem one final time. He makes a planned stop in Jericho to introduce himself personally to a tax collector named Zacchaeus. Over lunch or dinner, Zacchaeus became a believer, a disciple. Jesus ends that interlude by explaining just what happened. As he was leaving Zacchaeus' house, he said, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus said, Why did I come? I came to seek and to save the lost. Now, he saves the lost. How? Do you know that? Through his atoning debt. He took our sin, he took our guilt, he took our punishment, he suffered the hell that was due to us. Through his death and resurrection, we are saved from the wrath of God, from judgment. But Jesus added, look at it, he added something else to the mission of the Son of God in Luke 19.10. He says, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. When you read this, go home today. Read that wonderful interlude there in his journey up to Jerusalem where he goes to Zacchaeus' house. Read that. You know what the crowd said? When he said, Zacchaeus, I'm going to your house to eat today. You know, what, what did the crowd say? When they saw it, look at verse 7. When they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone to be the guest of a man who's a sinner, a tax collector. We wouldn't be caught dead in that man's house. But when he was leaving, after Zacchaeus had become a disciple, when he was leaving the house, he reminded the grumblers, the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. So that's the answer to the first question. What was the purpose of the incarnation? Why did the son of God come in the flesh? Very simple. He came to seek and to save the lost. Secondly, what were the results of Jesus' teaching and conversations at the feast in John 7? We read in verse 14, you look at it, about the middle of the feast, wasn't the first of it, at about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up to the temple and began teaching. He had come to the feast without family, without disciples, staying away from the crowd, and everyone was looking for him, especially those Jewish leaders. Look at verse 11. The Jews were looking for him at the feast saying, where is he? But he stayed to himself. Then at the middle of the feast, he made himself known. He went to the temple, not to listen, but to teach. Now remember, when you read the words of the Jews in the Gospel of John, he's referring to the Jewish authorities. Jesus was Jewish. The disciples were Jewish. Everyone in the land was Jewish. Remember from chapter 5. 
long before this, they were already plotting to kill him. Look from the fifth chapter, the 18th verse. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So they were at the Feast of Booths saying, where is he? They were licking their chops. It's all going to end here. So Jesus asked the question. We read it this morning. He asked the question of the authorities in front of the crowd. Look at verse 19. Why do you seek to kill me? Well, you know what the crowd said. The crowd answered in verse 20, you have a demon who's seeking to kill you. Now, Jesus had asked this question of the Jewish authorities. And the crowd says, you're paranoid. Who's trying to kill you? The crowd was made up of people from all over Israel. Many were from the Jewish colonies around the Mediterranean. They did not know about a two-year-old battle between Jesus and the Sanhedrin. They didn't know about the plans of the Sanhedrin to arrest Jesus and execute him. So then Jesus answers the crowd when they say you're paranoid. He answers the crowd with another question. Look at verse 23. Are you angry with me? Again, he's speaking to the authorities. Are you angry with me because I made man's body whole? I made a man's body well. You circumcise a child on the Sabbath. So how can you be angry with me for showing mercy to a man on the Sabbath? He's saying, you're to circumcise the child on the eighth day. And if that eighth day falls on the Sabbath, you still do the circumcision. Yet I cannot completely heal a paralytic and make him whole on the Sabbath. At this point, the crowd began to reason with each other with an ironic question. Look at verse 26. And here he is. They're saying, here's Jesus speaking openly. And these people plotting against him say nothing to him. Can it be that these authorities really know that he's the Christ? Have they discovered that he really is the Christ? Then some of the crowd began to ask a question that the authorities really did not want to hear. Look at this in verse 31. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, when the Christ that you're waiting for appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? They were saying, obviously, this man is the Messiah. You're missing it. Did you catch a phrase in verse 31? Look at it. Yet many, it's one of those phrases that we just pass over. Yet many of the people believed in him. Many, not a few, not some, many believed in his teaching. He was seeking the lost. There was a lot of give and take here. But the result was that many were converted. Jesus had the same purpose with the Sanhedrin. 
He was not just opposing them, confronting their opposition. Look who was there. Verse 50. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, that's from John 3, where Jesus said, you need to be born again. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, and who was one of them, in other words, he was one of the Sanhedrin, he said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? And the Sanhedrin leaders of Sanhedrin mocked him. Nicodemus, are you from Galilee? There's no prophet that ever comes out of Galilee. Perhaps Joseph of Arimathea, a good friend of Nicodemus, also a member of the Sanhedrin, perhaps he was there. Look at this and learn. Even when Jesus was in open debate with a group that hated him, he was still seeking the lost. Nicodemus was the result. Joseph of Arimathea was the result. But there's more. Look at verse 32. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. And the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. The leaders of the Sanhedrin realized this is getting out of hand. So they sent the temple guard, you go and arrest him now. We're putting an end to this. Now, this was the temple guard. These were guards assigned to the Sanhedrin. There were soldiers. They were under a direct order to arrest Jesus. Did they arrest him? Look at verse 45. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, well, why did you not bring him? Where is he? And the officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. Did they believe? I don't know. Doesn't tell us. But they refused to obey the direct order of the Sanhedrin. And they told the Sanhedrin the reason that they would not arrest him. No one ever spoke like this man. We've never heard anything like it. All right. What was the purpose of the incarnation? Why did the Son of God come in the flesh? He came to seek and to save the lost. What were the results of Jesus' teaching and conversations in John 7? A significant number of people believed. Even at least one member of the Sanhedrin was being convinced. And the soldiers of the Sanhedrin were listening. What was Jesus doing at the feast with these people? He was seeking the lost at the feast. Thirdly, what was the supreme cry of Jesus at the crux of the feast? Now, if you've been asleep, if you've gotten lost in this, wake up. You need to hear this. You need to see it. It's beautiful. Verse 37, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit whom those who believe in him were to receive. 
For as yet, the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. This is high drama. What do I mean by that? Well, the Feast of Booths was a remembering, we've already seen that, and a celebration. In their remembering, they built small temporary shelters, tents, or booths, and they built them on top of their houses, or they built them in the front of their houses, in the street, or they built them in the park. They were just all over. Why did they do that? They were remembering their journey through the wilderness when they lived in temporary housing. When they lived in tents, they remembered God giving them manna and how he supplied their needs. Here's the time of harvest, and God was still supplying their needs. But they also remembered God giving them water. It was a desert. How were they going to get water in the desert? At one point, it was desperate. They thought they were going to die of thirst. And God gave them water from the rock. Brian preached about this several weeks ago. Go back and listen to us. A beautiful message. Well, every day, as they remembered God giving them water, the high priest would take an urn from the temple, a vessel from the temple. And there would be a, a parade, kind of a holiday parade through the streets. And he would go to the pool of Siloam and get, take that urn, fill it with water, and then the parade would return back to the temple and they would pour the water on the altar. On the last day, probably when the high priest was returning with the water, Jesus made his claim. It was dramatic. Usually the rabbi was sitting when he talked. Here we read, Jesus stood. He shouted. Rabbis usually did not teach by shouting. If you are thirsty... If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Be there. Watch that. See it. He was talking about spiritual thirst. He was repeating what he told the woman at the well in John 4. I will give you living water that will quench your insatiable thirst. In John chapter 6, Jesus had given the crowd fed this crowd of 5,000 people with bread and fish. He was copying what God had done in the wilderness by giving Israel manna. Now he was providing food for them. Here in the midst of this seething cauldron, Jesus would not be silent. As this water is brought and poured out on the altar, he stands. If you're thirsty... Come to me and drink. But notice there, John takes time to, to say this, to, to make note of it. Whoever believes in me, verse 38, as the scripture said, out of his heart, out of his heart. It's not talking. He's, he's saying here that out of the person's heart, out of your heart, if you know Christ, 
out of your heart will flow rivers of this living water. It's one of the most amazing truths of Scripture that we talk about not near enough. John explains, now this he said about the Holy Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus had not been glorified. Reservoirs, not just receiving this water, not just drinking this water, but becoming reservoirs so that the water flows from the lives of his disciples into the world around them. It's not that his people bestow the Holy Spirit. That would be heresy. We don't bestow the Holy Spirit on the people around us. How then does the water flow like rivers of living water from our lives? How does that happen? It's very plain. You know the scripture. The Holy Spirit indwells us, lives in us. And what is the fruit of the Spirit? Look at Galatians 5.22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. The love of the Spirit, the love of the God is the love of God is going to flow from your life into the world around you. The joy of the Lord is going to flow from your life into the world around you. The peace of the Lord is going to flow from our lives into the world around us. In our everyday lives, out in the world, this supernatural fruit flows from our lives. Why did Jesus go up to the feast in Jerusalem when the very leaders of the city were waiting to kill him? He went up to seek and to save. Not just to stubbornly argue with them, not just to confront them. He was seeking and saving the entire time. That's what I was missing. Now, folks, our culture has become a secular hotbed of rebellion against God and His Word. We talked about, ladies, we talked about that on Tuesday. We've talked about that in this sanctuary often in the last year. So what is to be our attitude as we go out from here to live in that culture, in that boiling cauldron? Jesus has said, we're to be salt and light out there. Salt that resists the rottenness of sin. A light in the darkness of this world, and it is dark. But what will be the major, as we're salt, what will be the major purpose that drives us? We, if we're following Christ, we will be seeking the lost every day in every place now it's quite easy you know what we do when we see the darkness when we see the evil it's quite easy to speak against it speak against the darkness and putrefaction in our culture it's easy to oppose it 
It's easy to say we've never lived in a time like this. It's quite another to seek the salvation of the lost when we look at the evil and simply say it's really dark out there. It's really bad out there. I don't know how my children are going to survive. That's not enough. He said to be light in that world. To push back against the darkness. To seek the lost. One of the great mission minds and actual missionaries of the 20th century was Dr. Harvey Kahn. He was a scholar, author, preacher, missionary, theologian, but his expertise was missions. Ministers and scholars all over the world recognized him to be an international theological professor of missions. But he was not a scholar that lived in an ivory tower that just lived in the classroom or the library. He did teach at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. But he actually spent much time and he lived in the inner city in Philadelphia. He sacrificed much to seek the lost in that part of the city. Once he was severely beaten, he almost died from that beating. He never did completely recover. He only lived for several years. But the wounds and the scars were there. He died in 1999 at the age of 66. Early in my ministry at Independent, we asked Harvey to come to Memphis and help lay the foundation, theological foundation, for our missions program. This was near the beginning of my ministry here. He came and spent time teaching our leaders and preached on the Lord's Day. The two of us were watching a particularly disturbing program on Sunday evening. It was a documentary put together by Harry Reisner on CBS. The documentary was very, very dark, very perverse. I had not seen anything like it on a major network. At the end, when Harry Reisner was giving his summary. He was visibly shocked. He was shaken by what he had seen. I turned to Harvey and said, Harvey, those people are evil. They need a reckoning. Without sounding high-minded or without sounding admonishing, Harvey quietly said, John, they need Jesus. John, they need Jesus. I looked at him and realized he was actually hurting for those people. Hurting because they were lost. Hurting because they were on their way to hell. 
And he genuinely wanted to tell them about Jesus. Just as Jesus went into the seething cauldron of Jerusalem seeking the lost, we're to go into the seething cauldron of our culture, as evil as it is, seeking the lost, desiring above all that they know Jesus. Amen.